0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The election of Donald Trump was met with mixed emotions across Asia, and in the years since, his presidency has had a marked effect on the stability of the region. Countries are adjusting and re-evaluating their perspectives on regional security, Alliances are being tested and many countries are facing the reality of an Asia without a United States presence. How will security and prosperity be achieved in a contested Asia? Joining me this evening is Professor Nick Bisley, Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University and uh, my former boss, a long time ago now. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Hi, Matt. Good to be back. So uh, I thought we'd give it a bit of a, a sandbox question to begin with, so... Uh, very broad here. How would you describe the impact of the Trump presidency on the Asian region? You can hear. I'll give you a ball. You take it and run.
1: Um, I'm going long. <laughs> um, it's difficult to avoid the cliché of saying uh, Trump has been pretty disruptive. He's you know into the fourth year of his term now, and you know when he was first elected, well, apart from the fact we were all kind of pretty surprised, no one in the kind of asia watching world had really thought through what a Trump presidency would mean because we all assumed he wasn't going to win. And the initial thoughts uh, across the board, you know, were the full spectrum from in China, the view initially at any rate was, wow, this is a good outcome. You know, this would is, this is be good for us. You know, Beijing was worried that Hillary would come in and, and be much more muscular, you know, that they had had a fairly soft run, so to speak, from Obama. That wasn't going to happen anymore under Clinton, and that she'd muscle up, she'd get into human rights and the whole package, and that they generally felt that life was going to be more difficult. Uh, whereas Trump, you know, they thought, ah, oh, he's a businessman, he's a Republican. They generally tend to be more pragmatic, don't talk about human rights so much. This was going to be good, but then you know, sort of the, the penny dropped and began to think through the whole campaign shtick of you know China, and and when you looked at the campaign website. Of Trump, you know, it said we've got a seven-point plan to fix the American economy, and five of the seven were about bashing China. So, as his presidency unfolded, um, what we began to see was a, a whole slew of things that seemed to break with a lot of what we'd come to know as a sort of stable and predictable American president. Presence, most obviously, you know, he launched a initially a, a wide-ranging trade war with China, and then more recently, has basically made China a kind of full-spectrum opponent of American grand strategy and, and has done so, it must be said, with considerable support from the private sector, from Congress and from really from both sides of politics. It's sort of one of the remarkable pieces of the Trump presidency is that the policy on China, you know, probably wouldn't be handled in the same way and the same kind of chocolate cake diplomacy stuff that, that Trump played out. But, you know, we've seen a, a radical transformation on China we saw a really remarkable and very dangerous uh, approach to North Korea that, that really chucked out the previous ways in which the, the Americans had approached that, and a, a very cavalier attitude to economic relations in general and trade and integration more specifically. And, of course, allies have been treated um, pretty badly across the board. I mean, there's, there's this sort of superficial bad of Prime Minister Turnbull getting a terrible phone call But then there's a substantive bad in which, for example, South Koreans have been essentially ignored, not just ignored in terms of how uh, America's approached its North Korea policy, I mean, literally not including them in any of the considerations or negotiations or planning to being downright insulting about them as partners. So Asia has been in for a pretty rocky time under the Trump presidency, both in terms of how they've behaved, but also as as you were sort of hinting at in your opening comments, what Trump did is is really remind us and it's actually quite i think it's quite a useful thing in some respects it's reminded us that you can't always assume that countries will think about their interests in the same way and when in asia you are as most of the allies of the united states have been which is basically organizing their defense and security relations on the expectation that the us would be a constant ally that would always be prepared to write big checks to take big risks to keep the region stable what we've seen is actually countries won't always think that way. I think it's a useful exercise, even if it has come, A, as some, something of a surprise, and B, has also meant that a lot of countries have to begin to think about you know, what they're going to do. So in short, how has Asia fared under the Trump administration? It's been a pretty bumpy ride.
0: So since... America's allies have been hampered by the inconsistency of the US policy then. How many are looking beyond to see what their options are in the region? Is essentially everyone coming up with a B plan? And are those B plans becoming A plans? No one's
1: got a a plan B that's real yet. And in some respects, that's partly because for some countries like Australia or like Japan, an approach to the region, particularly a defence and security approach to the region that is not centred around the US alliance, is something that's so different from where they've been and so much more expensive for them to pursue that it's not really an option in the short to medium term. So what you're seeing is countries begin to think about plans B, which itself is pretty radical. Um, mm. One of the things I think is a useful or indicator to look at is how are countries planning, particularly partners, but across the region, how are they planning their defence and military expenditure over the next 20 or 30 years? And are we beginning to see changes in what they're going to do and what they're planning to be able to do with their militaries based on what's happened in the past four years and in particular based on essentially a view that the US may not be as reliable as it was in the past. And I think there's plenty of early evidence that says countries are really thinking that they are going to need to be able to do more on their own. And in Mm -hmm. fact, the recent defence update out of Canberra makes this pretty clear. You know, it doesn't say, you know, we're turning our back on the alliance. It doesn't say anything of the sort. But it does make pretty clear that there are certain things Australia is going to have to be able to do more of on its own. And that's a pretty clear indication to say that whether it's for political reasons, that's to say in America that turns itself more inward, whether it's just to do with a a sheer capacity issue, America is not going to be able to be the big, you know, expansive player in the future. Not, Not that it isn't going to be, but we need to plan for a world in which America is not as expansive as it was in the past. So you're not seeing any formal kind of dusting off of that plan B yet, but you're beginning to see public discussion about it, which was unimaginable four or five years ago, beyond the kind of fringe left for whom American disengagement was kind of a fever dream. And you're beginning to see states beginning to take those steps to think about, at the very least, a pared back American presence. Um, Mm But again, something that's pretty hard to have imagined four years ago.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess a lot of it depends on the term of presidency is four years. Are we going to have another four years of Trump? Is it going to be Ivanka 2024 after that? So we're going to uh, have to see what happens. And we can explore that in the last question towards the end of the podcast. But uh, just in the um, immediate to short term, I guess, now that we've got Trump, if America set out the aim for a free and open Indo-Pacific, and there's a lot about that, that is appealing to america and fits in with the kind of marga mindset if you want to look at it that way but how reliable an ally has america been in pursuing this regional ambition
1: the free and open indo-pacific with the unlovely acronym of foip became for want of a better term america's strategic bumper sticker for what it was trying to do in asia i think one of the most evident things of american policy in asia is it's pretty incoherent and not especially strategic um, but we had a label free and open Indo-Pacific. That's
0: a really um, big car bumper that you need that, that sticker.
1: <laughs> a mega cap-wearing American would have a big car, an F five hundred <laughs> or a Shunch or something like that. So the sticker, I think the sticker is going to fit. But the issue is more: we still don't really know what that actually means in mm. substance, and it's got you know a few clear problems about it. I mean, one is we've seen what the free and open Indo-Pacific means seems to depend on which parts of the American government you talk to and to see and to read the policy documents. And you've got a real tension between kind of three different versions of of it, between sort of version one, which is a policy which is trying to present a real break from the past. That's the same America that says we're going to take on China in great power competition, and we're no longer going to be this sort of engaged China partners across the region and to provide that sort of more liberal approach to the role in the region but instead we're going to move away to being a much more competitive posture principally with China but but that's a real break from the past a second element is one and that's I think where the instincts of most of the machine American government lie and that is actually free and open Indo-Pacific is in keeping with the past 40 years of American policy it's about an American-centered regional order organized around the international rule of law as defined and understood by us and our allies, in which there's a sort of broadly liberal international economic order. And we've slightly reorienting it and shifting it to reflect China's growing role. That's a vision which says there's actually not as much difference between Obama and Trump as, as many might imagine. But those are two really actually quite different visions of what America might do in the region. And then there's the third bit, which is the stuff that comes out of the president's mouth and out of his Twitter account, mm. which is all over the place. You know, I think one of the striking features of Trump in particular in his approach to regional policy is that he's a guy who's focused on the theatricality of foreign policy. You know, the big set piece, bilateral meetings, you know, Kim's summits, the summits with Xi Jinping. In many respects, he seems to operate under the theatre of statecraft is statecraft and that you don't need to follow that through with alliance relationships, alliance management, clear connection between ends and means and the like. So if you're an ally trying to figure out how you're going to position yourself in relation to the free and open Indo-Pacific, it's really difficult given these discordant messages coming from Washington. The other bit that's missing is the disconnection from an American policy point of view is the economic side of the free and open Indo-Pacific. So we've got a pretty clear view of the defence and military side, even if it pulls in slightly different directions. But you've then got a White House in particular that is not interested in a free and open Indo-Pacific understood in economic terms. It's interested in mercantilist, bilateral, you know, one-on-one, almost managed trade-style agreements. And that really doesn't sit comfortably at all, either with the underlying principles of a free and open Indo-Pacific, as most people would understand it, nor does it sit well with that longer run tradition of how America's approached the region. And that's probably one of these things that's been most unsettling from the region, but also across the world, which is partners of the US, either formal allies or others, have always seen and valued America as being a sort of champion of broadly understood kind of free liberal conception of trade. And I'm not saying that's necessarily I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying most countries felt that that was a good thing. And to see the United States walk away from that and say, actually, we no longer think this is useful and and good and we're going to support it is really unsettling. Allies kind of sit there and go, we don't know what you're trying to do. We're trying to position ourselves in relation to it. We've got this, frankly, wildly unpredictable guy at the pointy end of government. And it's been very difficult to think about how you're going to position yourself in relation to it. So allies have found it hard going.
0: Mm. So a lot of what Trump is doing pits America directly against China in numerous areas of the economy and regional security, and China's become the target for blame with things like COVID-19, they're blamed for election tampering. So how much of this is making the Asian region choose who they want to almost give their allegiance to? It's, It's like they're being told, even if it's unofficially, you're either with America or you're with China.
1: I mean, it's this famous line that's been thrown around by many countries, isn't it? You know, no one wants to have to choose, you know, to take Australia as an obvious example. You know, we've, we've clearly chosen in one basic sense that if at the extreme ends of the spectrum we get into a proper militarised contest, you know, we're on one side of that. We've got an alliance with the United States and that's, that's going to prevail. But, you know, if you look at a country like Singapore, it was a very interesting speech that the Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien gave at um, the Shangri-La Dialogue last June he gave a very sophisticated articulation of you know don't make us choose and you had this guy you know of singaporean heritage someone who's this is a country that's got a long cultural affinity to china with the you know, majority of its population being various diaspora chinese heritage that's got strong ties both economically to china but also to the united states a military relationship with the united states and essentially said you know don't make us choose but also if you fight, we're all going to get caught up in this. And you're mm-hmm. both to blame. You know, and I was in the audience and afterwards, the measure of the success of the speech was the way in which both the Americans and the Chinese people in the audience were equally ticked off with what he'd said and how he'd said it. But that, to me, was a really great encapsulation of the, the, the dilemma many states face, but also this sense of we realise that these great powers are going to be coming and bumping up against each other, that their interests will clash and they will have friction and competition But can we manage it better? Can we manage it more effectively? Do we have to put right on the public sort of domain that you will have to choose? Are you with us or against us? That's not helpful to anyone for a whole range of different reasons. So I think where Trump's approach to China has been, I think, quite counterproductive in the short to medium term is the way in which it has sort of dialed up the public diplomacy of contestation and made things, firstly, needlessly competitive and raised the temperature higher than it needs to but it's also forced states like Singapore, like Australia, to some degree like Japan and, and most explicitly like South Korea, to feel as if they're in a bit of a corner in which they have to put their chips on the table in which they'd really rather keep them to themselves and manage how they have to navigate this life between Beijing and Washington much more effectively. So and to take this stuff around the coronavirus, I mean, yes, it's a big problem that this came from China. Yes, if, if they had not, as my... Eight-year-old son said, "If they didn't like to sell and eat bats, we wouldn't be where we are." And that may be true, but but we're where we are, and the finger pointing doesn't help us. It doesn't help us manage this. It doesn't help us try to figure out how to prevent something like this happening again. And I think it's illustrative of how a short-sighted kind of finger-pointing mentality is. We are further behind on this virus than we should be, and likely to you know anything that comes around again is going to fall into the same trap. So. For Asian partners, particularly those who are either instinctively or formally linked to the United States, have found this overtly combative, public kind of, not just whipping up of anti-China sentiment, but saying, you know, you've got to be on our side, not particularly helpful to how they're trying to manage their lives because, you know, we've we've all got to live with China one way or another. You know, if you're South Korea, you've got to live with them because they're right there and they're your biggest trading partner, you know, in every respect, they're fundamentally important to your future. So it's been... Um, To reiterate the line, it's been a bumpy ride in the region as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Before we open it up to the audience, and just as a reminder, if you type your questions in the Q&A and they do meet my rigorous selection criteria, I uh, will be inviting you to flick on your microphones and ask them of the prof in person. Uh, So, My final question for you, Nick, before we turn to the audience uh, is. The inevitable crystal ball. Do you think Asia would enjoy a second term of the Trump presidency, or is everyone holding their breath for the normality that would hopefully come with a Biden agenda?
1: I think there's one constituency above all else that is hoping that Trump will win, and that's in Beijing, and that's the party elites. They've benefited more than any other group from the Trump administration due in the main to the incoherence of American policy. Yes, they've had a more combative kind of America and the trade conflict and the like. But boy, they've made hay. They feel like they've won the lottery. And Mm. there's like, this is a setup, right? This guy can't be this bad. You know, what's actually going on? What's the real game? Same in Iran, same in Moscow. But I think everywhere else in the region, particularly the allies, Seoul, Tokyo, Singapore, are all desperately hoping that we get a return to normality of American policy, whatever kind. And I guess just to sort of step back a bit from it, Whilst I may sound like I've been lashing Trump and putting a lot of blame to the Trump administration, the underlying trends are kind of long running. I think if you sit there and go, what's new about what America is doing in the region that you can lay Trump's feet and say, would things ever have been different Mm. had Hillary been able to win the, the electoral college vote? And I think, yeah, there'd be clear differences. We wouldn't have had the, the rising of the temperature and or the, the escalation of tensions in, in North Korea. You wouldn't have had the sharpness with China. But the nature of the region's strategic relations, you know, these are long-running trends, and what Trump has kind of done is accelerate a lot of them. But we haven't seen, with the exception of the trade stuff, not a radical break with the past, but an acceleration of trends that are in train. which is a very long-winded way of saying, I think, America's allies and partners would much prefer a Biden presidency than a Trump presidency. But we probably have to realise that Biden would come in and would inherit, not just inherit the Trump positions, but the relationship with China would remain difficult and not just because of Trump. This changing strategic balances there, America's capacity and political will to play the big strategic role it has had in the past will be challenged. COVID is going to make that much harder. So I think will get a return to normality where, and, and I think Biden is likely to win at this point. Most allies would find that preferable, but we will still in for a, some difficult years ahead.
0: Alright, we will now turn to the audience uh, and the first question that I'm going to ask is from Lawrence Penny. So, Lawrence...
1: Okay, the question was, you know, has the USA's
0: handling of the COVID crisis seriously undermined their credibility in in asia and the rest of the world i mean they do
1: seem to have handled it quite badly particularly compared to southeast
0: asia europe and and australia
1: undoubtedly i mean i think one of the great strengths that america has long had both in in the region and globally is it's a country of great success and prestige and influence and that sort of sense of here is a country that is unambiguously powerful successful and capable and there's been a sense for a period, really after the global financial crisis, that America is not quite as compelling a kind of political and economic story to tell as it likes to think it has, and I think COVID has really accentuated that sense that's there. And I and I guess if what we see coming over the next few years is not just you know competition and friction between the U.S. and China in Asia, but you see a more global competition between authoritarianism of a Chinese variety and a kind of American liberal capitalism. This is the Cold War 2.0 scenario, you know, the Chinese will be well within their rights to say, there's lots wrong with your system? Much as the Soviets did, you know, the, the Soviets used to like making hay out of racial problems in the United States during the Cold War and inequality and poverty and the like. And, and I think you'll see that. And COVID has got both, I think, a prestige problem in general, but I think could well be caught up with the kind of battle of ideas about how to organise societies that may come in the future to say nothing of the fact that this thing's going to cost an enormous amount. So the, the economic ramifications of this for America will be significant. What that means for its global role and its role in the region, I think, will be, um, be, will, will hamper its, its capacity to play the kind of role it's played in the past.
0: All right. So we will um, now turn to another question. I will uh, flick on Zach Eggleston's microphone.
1: Uh, hi there. Hi, Nick. So I was just wondering, like, how much of an impact has Trump really had on China? like more specifically Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party as we know it today? Has Trump spurred on their authoritarian resurgence by providing a helpful what not to do? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I I tend to think he's a sort of useful foil. And certainly, you know, in the early years of his administration, you know, the Global Times and the China Daily was were, were always filled with, you know, yeah, you know, he was kind of straight from central casting. Like, Here's what's wrong with robber baron capitalism and democracy. This is you, you want democracy, you get a clown like this running your country. At a deeper level, I'm not sure that what we've seen in the way Xi Jinping and, and the party have reorganized politics and society more generally in China along that much more authoritarian line that you've described, I don't think it's taken a great deal, a set of external prompts. Trump and, and America more generally in the way it's responded has been helpful to aspects of the propaganda around it and justifying playing into the legitimating strategies that the party has. We are the party that will keep you safe and run society well and look what the clowns over the pond are doing. But I think that authoritarian instinct was one that was very much internally driven by Xi, his vision for how the party should run China and how China needed to be run at this particular juncture of its its economic development.
0: Okay, we will now go to Hunter, Hunter Marsden, who I think is uh, from ANU. Is that right?
1: Hi, that's right. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to pose a question. Thank you for the discussion. Um, I wanted to ask about this week's announcement by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, regarding the South China Sea policy of the United States. I'm wondering how do you think this will impact or change the foreign policies of Southeast Asian countries? Thanks. Hi, Hunter. I, we've exchanged lots of tweets, so it's nice to see you, or at least to hear you. So, yeah, good question. I, I, I guess it's, it's very early to tell. Yeah, you know, so if, for those of you not followed it, this is Secretary of State Pompeo essentially came out and said, for the first time, really forcefully laid out a, you know, we, the Americans, think that what China's been doing in the South China Sea is illegal, and that the U.S. is very forcefully saying, you know, we're in line with the arbitral tribunal decision. It's taking sides, but what so it kind of is and then finishes with a kind of there will be consequences now the question of course is what will the consequences be and to what extent is this going to be a sort of thing that matt was alluding to earlier is this going to be a moment where america says we're taking a stand and are you with us or against us both partner non-claimant countries like australia like japan or the claimant countries themselves so i think one of the things that's, that washington and, and others have faced non- non-claimants have faced is the complexity of pulling all of the claims together and trying to gang up on china because the claimants themselves have these cross-cutting views on on the sea themselves so it's very hard to corral all of them together and that's always been a game that china has played successfully to sort of divide and conquer my sense i think is that given the trump administration's talk tough carry no stick whatsoever and don't follow through um, on threats approach that is largely, not entirely, but largely being the, the hallmark of its Asia strategy. I think most in the region will sort of anticipate that this is a, a lot of noise that probably isn't going to have a lot behind it beyond, I mean, you might get a few more sail throughs, you might get a few more freedom of navigation operations. I am be convinced the US is going to be prepared to get involved in a military confrontation with China in an election year. But it's Trump, you know, <laughs> it's, hard to t- it's very hard to tell. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it's very early to tell. I think Southeast Asian countries in particular will be a bit uneasy and a bit set back because will they have to show their colours? But I think most will probably be anticipating that they won't probably have to because I think it's unlikely that the US will follow through on this because following through will be difficult and risky.
0: All right. Thanks for your time tonight, Nick. Pleasure, Matt. Thank you all for, for listening. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter; he is at Nick Bisley, and you can follow Latrobe Asia; we are at Latrobe Asia. Our next live podcast will be on the twenty-first of July, six PM AEST. It will be with Natasha Kasam of the Lowy Institute on the subject of Trump and Taiwan. Ally or Wildcard. You can find out more information at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.